Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. It's so good to hear you sing, Frack family. His goodness is genuinely coming after us. He has been so faithful, so faithful. Andrew Peterson is one of my, oh, I enjoy listening to his music. I'm not just a Johnny Cash fan, if you were wondering from last week. I do also like some Christian music, and Andrew Peterson has a song, I've Seen Too Much. I've Seen Too Much. And in this song, he talks about his tasting of the resurrection power in his life. <clears throat> and he's reflecting on probably a first century person. But what he's saying in this song is he's seen too much. Now he can't go back. He's seen too much of Christ's work to believe anything else. He's just seen too much. And he can't go back now. His song says this, and it's all I can do to get up in the morning, all I can do to stand up in the storm. When all I remember is the passing form, a glimpse of the glory before it was gone. He's talking about Jesus. And I get so tired of this ridicule, but I cannot deny what I know to be true because I've seen too much. What else can I do? Where else can I go, Lord? Where else can I go but to you? I've seen too many faces, all shining like the sun. I've seen too many skies on fire, like the face of the Holy One. I've seen too many eyes wide open, that once were so blind, all burning with the beauty of the same love, the same love that opened mine. And the beauty of the love of Christ, this burning beauty that opened others' eyes, and Andrew Peterson's eyes, and yours and my eyes, opens us to see Jesus and we just can't go back. We just can't go back. And, and this is what we see this morning in Mark chapter two, where people are brought to Jesus and Jesus does his work and they see, they see Jesus and they just are never the same. They're never the same. Mark devotes a longer section to this story than his normal quick and fast pace writing, which means it's important. And we're going to see some amazing things about Jesus here, that he has authority to forgive sins, that he identifies himself as the son of man, a, a, a figure from the Old Testament with great authority and a kingdom and power. And Jesus in this section of Mark 2 is now starting to come to his own, his owner not receiving him though. He's coming to his people and they're not receiving him. The Jews are going to rebel against him. And he's going to begin to turn the world upside down in their eyes. He's going to begin to transform the way they understand things. And for some, it will be received warmly. For others, they will reject it. Their ideas, their perspectives on the law are going to be challenged. And then they're going to see who Jesus truly is. And then the question will be, well, they have seen too much and they can never turn away from Jesus now. And so the, the call from Mark chapter 2 as we read this and look about it is just bring people to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. And let them evaluate the man Christ Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. And trust that Jesus will know exactly what to do. He will know exactly what to do. So look at Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> and when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. A simple story about an amazing Savior who displayed his power when people just brought someone to Jesus. Bring people to Jesus. Bring them to his word. So here's, here's Jesus who's preaching the word, probably at Peter's house. He, he called this place home and the word is the content of the, the gospel of the kingdom that he came proclaiming. And we see in other G gospels Jesus' content, but for whatever reason, Mark wants us to focus more on the person of Jesus and less on the content of what he said. But what we know about Jesus is that he embodies what he preaches. So you can go to other gospels and get more content, but when you look to Jesus, this is, this is what his preaching would create, is, is the man Christ Jesus, his image what he does, what he says. And that's what I love about this gospel is it lets you get to know the man, Christ Jesus. And one of the things you see here is that as he's preaching the word, in verse two, we have more crowds, another big crowd. This is a common theme in Mark. Crowds don't always equal disciples. Crowds come, they listen passively, but they don't commit. Disciples commit and they follow. Crowds stand and observe. It's not the same, but di disciples commit to action. And oftentimes in the, in the book of Mark, crowds, they're not marked by repentance and belief. Usually they're actually in the way. <laughs> they're actually in the way of people trying to get to Jesus Christ. And so crowds were coming to Jesus in Capernaum. They were hearing his word and not always responding in faith. But they're coming and they're hearing his word and it's in this context, a big crowd, swarms of people trying to hear Jesus speak. We see the focal point here of the story that four men bring a paralytic to Jesus. So a paralytic is, is someone who's paralyzed, who's unable to use their arms in the end or both their legs, maybe both. They're paralyzed, they're unable to get to Jesus on their own. And so what you see here is you, they're bringing them to Jesus' word who's, as Jesus is preaching, but they're also just bringing them to Jesus, the person. Bringing them to Jesus. I love the tenacity of these friends. Don't you? So, so they're, they're bringing him to Jesus and there's massive crowds. Okay, well, we got to get him to Jesus. 
Typically, there were stairs that went up the side of these houses where people would go up and they would hang clothes to dry or they would go get some silence and solitude, maybe spend some time in prayer. But they would get up, away, up onto their roof. And these roofs were pretty, were flat with cross beams, then cross thatched with sticks, and then thatch and thicker grass, and then mud on top to seal it off. And so they, the four men, bring their paralytic friend up there. Hey, we can't get to him. From here, let's go up and drop him down. Okay, they go up, and they're digging up the roof. There, there's no, like, section that they just pick up and move over and set down. I mean, they're, they're digging up the roof. There's going to be dust and dirt and junk following on people and probably on Jesus. And they're trying to dig a hole large enough that they can descend their friend down onto Jesus in his bed. Now, what would you do here? I don't know about you. What, what, was your, what would your temperament do if someone's digging a hole in the roof? I know what mine would be. Stop. Like, what are you? You're creating so much work for later. That's probably immediately what I would do. This is going to take so much work, and I don't have time to mess with this. Jesus is such a remarkable man, though. He's impressed. He's impressed. I would rebuke. <laughs> Jesus is impressed. He's encouraged by them removing the roof. He has positive things to say about this. We'll get to what those positive things are in a minute. But just a side note, be a friend like this. And find friends like this. Who will use unconventional means to get you to Jesus. Be a friend like this. Whatever it takes, let's help each other get to Jesus. And I love what they do because they, they didn't know what to say or do when they got there. They just got them to Jesus. You know, like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I was in family ministry prior to being here. My, LaGrange, my office in LaGrange was often a place where people would bring stuff to me. And they would leave it. And sometimes there was a note, most time not. And I would come in and find a box and open it and see what was inside of it and think, what am I supposed to do with this? And if they were clothes that fit my girls, sometimes I'd make the assumption, clothes for my girls. Sometimes, a couple weeks later, I'd get asked, did you get those clothes that were going to go to the, good, you know, the service that gives the needy kids in our neighborhood? I did find that box, yes. Do you mind that my girls are now wearing those clothes? Um, I wasn't sure what to do with it, right? Like people would just bring it in and assume that I knew. And I did not know most of the time what I was supposed to do with stuff that got dropped off. That's not going to happen with Jesus, right? They just bring him to Jesus. They drop him in from the roof and let Jesus deal with it from here. But you know, that's, that's so true. That's so good. That displays such confidence in the man, Christ Jesus. And so one of the things we're trying to act, ask ourselves is how can we bring people to Jesus? 
to hear his word, but also just to encounter his person, the person of Christ Jesus. In, in the conversation that we're going to do just after the service, we're going to look at John 4. And you remember the woman at the well comes out to the city. She's like, just come see this man that told me everything I ever did. Like, just come see the man, Christ Jesus. She, she didn't really explain everything about Jesus. She just said, come see this, this man. And that's what they do here. They bring Jesus to a house and Jesus, or bring their paralytic to a house where Jesus is and just let him go. And, and so it's just this question of how can we expose people to the person of Jesus Christ here and now? Maybe, maybe in your home, you just bring people into your home and they get to see how Jesus transforms a home. Maybe you invite lost people to church. You know, one of the sweetest things about coming to church on Sunday is that you know the spirit of Jesus Christ is going to be with his people in power and in strength. And so you bring them here and we read the word and we preach and we sing to Jesus and they experience the presence of the risen Lord here in us. Or maybe small groups. Small groups are an authentic expression of true Christian fellowship where Jesus can be seen and heard in the lives of his body and the church. That, that's how they're explained in the membership pack. I'm going to membership class tonight. I hope y'all will let me become a member of your church. <laughs> but I want us to think together of how we can bring unbelievers to Jesus Christ, right? Not always, they don't always have to be confrontational gospel moments. They can also always, they can just be Believers are being unbelievers into the incorporated into like normal avenues of Christian life. One of the quotes from the membership class packet is from Francis Schaeffer, and it says, Our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. And so what Schaeffer's after there is to say, when they come and they encounter the risen Lord among his people and they see the love of Christ among their people, they're encountering Jesus himself. And this is an argument for the sake of the faith when they see Jesus Christ. So I hope to see these things happen like at the fall festival, maybe around a family dinner in small group. One of the quotes in the small groups is that it gives the unchurched and new attendees a meaningful way to break into the life of the church. We, get, we begin to see evangelism as a process, a process of just incorporating unbelievers in as they learn and grow and understand the gospel and see the love of Christ among his people. So let's think strategically how we can bring people to Jesus, even in unconventional ways. Please don't tear the roof off the building. We'll let you in the door. But let's find ways we can bring people to Jesus. And when we do, then let's just trust Jesus to do his work. Let's trust him to do his work because Jesus loves to forgive sin. And this is what he does here. Look at verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So when they come, Jesus sees faith, right? Cumulatively, among these men, they have faith in Jesus, confidence in Jesus. They believe that Jesus has the power to do whatever's needed. They just have faith in this man. We're going to get him to Jesus, and he's going to answer our problems. So that's this, you know, faith. 
This might be hard to define, but it's active trust that Jesus is sufficient. Jesus will meet your deepest needs. And Mark shows us here that faith is actively coming to Jesus with your problems and then trusting he'll know what to do. Trusting. I'm, gonna, I'm, in, I'm all in with you, Jesus. You know what's best. You know what to do. Their faith drives them to Jesus. And verse 5 says, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. That's probably not what the four signed up for when they brought Jesus, their friend. Jesus, he's paralyzed. Um, uh, I mean, I don't want to downplay the value of having your sins forgiven, but we went to great lengths to get him here. We'd really like for our friend to walk home. You know, I mean, they're probably thinking, this is good, but we were hoping for more, something different maybe. And, and this is the beauty of coming to Jesus. You, you come to him and you allow him to dictate what you truly need. That's true faith. Sometimes, many of you know, he won't take away. He won't heal immediately. But he'll forgive your sin. And so he says, Jesus, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Sin. He brings up sin. What is sin? It is our failure to glorify God by living the life he created us for. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. We're, we're all on the same plane here. We've all fallen short. And this comes because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden. God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, and they rebelled against his word. And so that sin then transfers to us. David said, in sin my mother conceived me, meaning that even in the womb and he was brought forth in sin. Our nature, our tendency is towards sin. And if we honestly evaluate our, our hearts and our minds and their impulses, I think we know we're sinful people. Man is born for trouble as sure as sparks fly upward, Job 5 says. Our, our natural inclination is apart from God's will. It's to see, yes, God created me, or I'm here, and I came from somewhere, but I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not answering to a higher authority. That's sin. In the wages of sin, sin deserves death. And if, if that seems a little offensive or a little harsh, it helps to understand it's because we're sinning against God himself, an infinitely holy God, perfect in every single way, transcendent, so far and high and above us, yet perfectly pure. And he created us to know him and enjoy him, and instead we've sought out our own ways. And so a small sin is an infinite offense to a perfect, holy God. And they're, they're sins against him, primarily. We should see our sin, even when we sin against each other, as primarily a sin against God himself. As David said after coveting his neighbor's wife, Uriah, then having Uriah killed because he wanted his wife and he pursued his wife, he got Uriah drunk multiple times in the process and he lied about these things. This is a grievous sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And he said, against you, God, Against you have I sinned. Our sins, yes, have personal dynamics here, but, but there's primarily the offenses against the holy God. 
It separates us from God. It disregards God's rule. It makes us enemies of God. Which means that only God should get to forgive sins. Only God should get to extend your forgiven when the sin offense is primarily against him. And so this is the source of the problem in verse 5. Son, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is removing the guilt of wrongdoing. That's what forgiveness does. It says, you were guilty. I no longer hold it against you. I move you from a place of guilt and sin to a place of no longer guilty, no condemnation. I've, I've taken that away from you because Jesus is the one primarily offended then. If you're going to extend forgiveness, it's because you're the one primarily offended. And Jesus just takes this authority upon himself. And notice how he takes it upon himself, though. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. You are forgiven. This is an authoritative and tender statement. It's an endearing term of affection, son, typically from a, a, someone with authority to someone under their rule. But son, it's, it's got a tenderness to it. It's gracious. It's endearing. Son, your sins are forgiven. And for Jesus to do this here with tender authority is for Jesus to say, I can do what God does. I'm equal with God. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sins and removes transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Jesus is mighty, and he's mighty to forgive. He's tenderhearted and willing to save. He's the great high priest who's going to come and offer himself up for the sins of the people to offer them forgiveness. And he's just putting himself in God's place right here. He's not saying to the paralytic, hey, someone will forgive you. Or, hey, someday your sins will be taken care of by someone else. He's saying your sins are forgiven with the authority that he has. They come to him in faith, paralyzed, and his sins are forgiven in the power and presence of Jesus. And this action begins to expose sinful hearts. This is what we can trust. Bring people to Jesus. He delights to forgive sin. He'll also expose sinful hearts. Look at verse 6. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, you've got some, the paralytic and his friends, they are just coming to Jesus. Just do whatever you need. Just, we trust you. And you've got others, like... In the grandstands, kind of sitting back, criticizing, just waiting to give a negative assessment. I mean, talk about a major shift in the story, right? You're, you're hoping for like a heartwarming healing here. <laughs> and it is a bucket of ice cold water. Nope, we're going to have a confrontation now over religious authority. Okay. 
And the scribes are asking some legitimate questions inside their hearts. They're asking good questions. Why does this man speak like that, they say? Well, there's a really good answer, isn't there? But they're not going to consider the really good answer. He's blaspheming, which means, or they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? He's blaspheming. Well, there is a good answer to the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? They're just unwilling to consider it. And when they say that he's blaspheming, I mean, they're accusing Jesus of claiming what only God can do. And the penalty for this was death. So they're, they're calling him out in their hearts. And the scribes are displaying something that we're all prone to. You had a paralyzed man physically that came, but these are coming now with spiritual paralysis. One comes to Jesus and submits to him and says, whatever you do, whatever you do, I'm in. I'm just here, Jesus. I trust you with everything. And the others stand back and criticize what the Lord says, what the Lord commands. They're spiritually paralyzed. They're dead in their sin. And this is Jesus just exposes their sinful hearts. When people hear about him and make no response, they're revealing their sinful hearts. And Jesus then says something amazing. He's going to prove to them by his works that he genuinely has authority. He genuinely has this authority to forgive sin. Okay, so he, he loves to forgive sin. When we bring Jesus, people to Jesus, he'll also expose sinful hearts. But then he proves by his works. He delights to prove by his works. So he sets up an amazing situation here. Look at verse 8. So he, he perceives in his spirit that they thus question within themselves. And he said to them, so he, he knows all things, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed up and walk? Think about being, think about being the scribe here. Well, it's easier, it's easier to say this, but man, if, if Jesus makes this guy rise up and walk, what are we going to do, right? If you're the scribe, you're starting to notice we're, we might be in a pinch here. We might be in a pickle. And it's, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? I mean, my sins are forgiven. I can't show you. I can't show that to you. There's no physical evidence to prove it. There's no way to prove Jesus is lying when he says your sins are forgiven because it's not like physically verifiable by the sight. So Jesus says, I want you to know I have authority to forgive sins. So I'm going to prove it by pronouncing something that you can prove false if it doesn't happen. Right? If this doesn't happen, I'll be proven false. So he looks at the paralyzed man. And he says to the paralyzed man, who's now had his sins forgiven, I say to you, rise and walk. Pick up your bed and go home. And he did. <laughs> he came to Jesus. His sins were forgiven. He picked up his bed. He was healed. And he rose and he went home. If you've ever had muscles you couldn't use because of a broken bone or something, atrophy, the muscle, loss of muscle happened so quickly. And this man was fully restored at the words of Jesus. 
And so now if the scribes want to insist he can't forgive sins, they still have to recognize the fact that he made a paralyzed man walk in their presence. He, he, can't, he can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Well, yeah, but that guy's walking now. Uh, that, that doesn't mean anything. He was, maybe that guy was faking it. I mean, I don't think he was. People knew this guy was paralyzed. His friends carried him in. They ripped a hole in the roof. He can't forgive sins. I don't believe it. Okay. Okay, scribes, but that's on you. There's a guy who was paralyzed, and now he's carrying his stuff and going home. Deny Jesus at your own risk. Spiritual paralysis. A hard heart, unwilling to receive Jesus for who he truly is. And this is what Mark is after. He wants us to see Jesus for who he truly is. And so Jesus says that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man, he claims this for himself. And it's remarkable in the Gospels that that term doesn't get him in more trouble. It's steeped in Old Testament meaning, but it often doesn't upset people when he calls himself this. It's drawn from Daniel 7, where we see a figure with divine authority, a kingdom to carry out. Dominion and glory belongs to this man. Mark uses it 14 times in his, in his gospel. But Jesus proves that he's the Son of Man, that he has this divine authority by pronouncing sins forgiven. And then he proves that he has the power to forgive sins by causing the man to rise and walk and carry his bed and go home. So his, his works in the lives of that man proved his identity. Right? And so the question comes to me, how has Jesus proven himself to you through his works? Specifically in your life. Can you say that Jesus is the Son of Man, the one with all authority and power, who rules over a kingdom and deserves all glory? Can you say that in your life because of his work in your life? If so, why? How has he proven himself to you? Because that work in your life is going to be a testimony to those around you. Just like this man walked, he picked up his stuff and walked out and they were all amazed and glorified God. His walking out was a dis visible display of the Lord's goodness towards him. His goodness is coming after us. And so I wonder what visible display of our Lord's grace we can show in our lives. What sins has the Lord freed you from? If you were still walking in those sins, where would it have led you? What goodness has our Lord given to you that you can celebrate in the presence of others? What mentality change has our Lord done in your mind that has reshaped your perspective on the world? What suffering in your life has our Lord completely transformed for you? And moved you from despair to hope. It's worth noting that without the paralysis, the man would never have been brought to Jesus. Probably what he would have said, the greatest affliction in his life, without it, 
he would have never met Jesus. What good has our Lord brought about in your life through pain and through suffering? Constant, you know, constant appeals to Christ for relief from pain that you're feeling actually keep you in close communion with your Savior. Maybe it's the peace of his presence that he's given you amidst suffering that proves himself to you. But Jesus proves himself to others through his works in our lives. We can't walk people to Jesus physically, but we can bring people to Jesus by telling them how he's proven himself to us. Like that Andrew Peterson song, I've seen too much. Where else can I go? Where else can I go, Lord, but to you? We can bring people to Jesus. We can bring him bring people to his work in our lives. We can bring people to his gospel. We can bring people to his person as we speak of him. We can trust our Lord Jesus with them when we do to expose their sinful hearts, to forgive their sin if they cry out to him in faith, to prove himself to them. We can trust Jesus to do this. Let's keep bringing people to Jesus, knowing that he will do what is right and he knows what to do with them. So I hope you stick around in the conversation next because we will think about God's goodness towards us, how we can incorporate that into our story in a way that will prove Jesus to a watching and listening world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you've proven yourself to us. Thank you that through your death, burial, and resurrection, Lord Jesus, you have now paid the price our sins deserve and that we can receive forgiveness of sins through you. And that brings us delight and joy. It relieves us of fear of condemnation of guilt and gives us certainty in your presence. So we pray that you'll now fill our hearts with joy and gladness to you, Lord that you'll open up avenues for us to speak of your goodness towards us, your life change in our lives, and, and to show and prove to others by your works in our lives, your existence and your love and your tender affection and authority to forgive all sin for all who come to you in faith. We pray that you'll be glorified now in our singing and that you'll make your name great through us as a church and testify to your love and your authority to all those around us. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.